Does 2 Peter 3.9 refute Calvinism? We'll look at that today on the Chorus in the Chaos podcast. Hello and welcome to the Chorus and the Chaos podcast. My name is Jack and I've got a little bonus episode for you this morning looking specifically at 2 Peter 3.9. Uh, this, this is one of those verses, which I'll read it in just a moment, that, uh, you, you know, alongside, say, John 3.16, it's probably the most common proof text I'm presented when someone wants to refute or disprove Calvinism. And the argument appears, you know, pretty compelling if you just look at the verse in its original context. Uh, so let, let me read it really quick and then we'll dive in because what I want to do in this episode is uh, quickly, this won't be a long episode, but quickly look at why 2 Peter 3.9 doesn't refute Calvinism. In fact, I would say it actually backs it up when you really dig into the text. So 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So, you know, the the Socratic method, when someone would approach me with this, probably, you know, usually sounds someone like something like this. If someone's approaching a Calvinist and saying, oh, 2 Peter 3 9, that disproves Calvinism, um, you know, they would say things like, well, how can God only choose some, pe- some people when 2 Peter 3 9 says he wants all to reach repentance? You know, doesn't this two competing wills, you know, how can God, you know, save some, but uh, choose to save only some, but desire all. These are competing wills. God's contradicting himself, so on and so forth. And and while on the surface, I'll give you, if you just look at that, look at the coffee cup verse, right? If you just stick it on a coffee cup and isolate it by itself, 2 Peter 3.9 3, really does seem like a great trump card for a Calvinism debate. Uh, but but again, with careful exegesis of the text, it it doesn't do that. It really doesn't negate Calvinism. It, instead, it's a, it's a beautiful scripture, truly beautiful text that speaks... I would argue primarily to the patience of her Lord and the hope of salvation for his church. And I think, I'll add, I think it's a mistake here to get bogged down. If you're really just looking at it from a, from a Calvinistic point of view, right? Is this, is this Calvinistic or non-Calvinistic, right? I think it's, it's, it's a kind of a mistake to get bogged down into a lengthy will of God discussion here, right? You can go into those and there's worthy discussion there to really, <clears throat> excuse me, dig deep. And, and think through the the will of God, the, the perfect will of God, right? There's there's a lot of great books and stuff out there, and it's very compelling, interesting thought when we try in our finite minds to comprehend what it means to act and will um, as God. But I think it's overkill for this discussion because when you when you study the text and you really look at the context, uh, there's quite a bit of clarity about about what Peter's saying here, and has nothing to do with uh, you know with the wills of God uh, specifically. Uh, at least I don't think it does. I'll argue. Um, so when you when you look at you know one of the cool things in scripture when you look at what what God does, He uses people to write scripture, and when the the inspired word of God when it's written, it often retains the author's personality. Uh, you can glean insight from themes. You can look at the background, and, and knowing all of this about the author and the situation and what's happening. You know, you, you can, it adds a lot of depth and insight to any, to any, any reading. 
And notwithstanding, it's still it's still easy to to study the epistles in chapter and verse vacuum, right? You can do that and neglect when they were written, and you can still get things out of it. But when you know who wrote it, where they wrote it, and why they wrote it, there's added depth and meaning. Uh, that's a beautiful, beautiful element that God's given us in Scripture. Um, so anyway, as we dig into this verse, to, to, to rightly remove it, I say let's move it out of the vacuum, right? Let's take it out of the vacuum and look at the and look at the situation, uh, the in the call to the letter's original audience. So who was Peter writing this to when he made this statement about God desiring all to come to repentance? Uh, contextual data is key to a right understanding, and we get that right in the greeting, right? It's a letter. So Peter addresses his audience in 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1, he says, To those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. He says, To those who have obtained a faith. This letter was written specifically to believers. Okay? That's important. And as we move into chapter 3, the recipient of this letter, the target of the letter, is reestablished to remove any question of what, what Peter means in verse 9. Notice what he says in Second Second uh, Peter 3, 1, so a few verses before. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. Such an affectionate title, beloved. It, it, it's really reserved for the church, those in a covenant relationship with the Lord. And then he begins to address a specific concern held among the believers at that time as to why the Lord has not yet returned. Uh, and it's at this point that we arrive at the paragraph containing uh, our primary text. So let me read 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10. So the couple of the verse before and basically the verse after. Uh, so Peter says, But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a, is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works and all that are done will be exposed. So in this text, Peter's explaining to the church that the Lord is patient towards them so that none of those whom the Lord have called will perish. Did you hear that? Jesus isn't just taking his time. He's waiting for all future generations of Christians to come to faith before he returns. He's not lost, losing any of his sheep. So this text, what Peter's saying here, and in the letter, this wasn't just a letter written to the mass of humanity, right? It was a letter written to the people of God, those who've obtained a faith, the beloved. This text has nothing to do with God's sentiment towards all of mankind everywhere in all time, although there's other places in Scripture that we can get that. Rather, it's a beautiful demonstration of God's love for his people, his covenant love for his people, and their assurance of salvation. Jesus will return when every single one of his sheep have been returned to the fold. And every moment that the Lord doesn't return is a reminder of God's faithfulness to his elect. He hasn't returned because they're sheep who've not been brought home yet. So I encourage you for a moment, just kind of pause and reflect on God's amazing love for his people. He is delaying the ushering in of his eternal glorious kingdom in spite of all the world's injustices, evils, and sin to ensure that not one of his beloved is lost. I mean, praise to his glorious grace. That's incredible. It's incredible. And, and, and finally, as we kind of wrap this up, this very short episode, uh, I want to point out one other kind of New Testament usage example of the Greek word all in this text. 
So, uh, you know, in Second Peter 3, 9, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. For us non-Greek scholars, such as myself, I would not consider myself a Greek scholar by any means, uh, the word there is pantas or pantas. I've heard it said a couple different ways. The, the Apostle Luke uses this word in Luke 4.36 when he says, they were all amazed. They were all amazed. The word all there, they were all amazed. And he's referring to all those that saw Jesus heal a man with an unclean demon. So Jesus heals him and then Luke says, they were all amazed. Now Luke certainly certainly doesn't mean that all people everywhere for all time were amazed in that moment. That's nonsense. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. But in the context of the story and the narrative, you get the sense of what's happening. Everyone that was there was, was, was amazed. They were all amazed. Everyone who was around was amazed. So we, we, we'd be careful not to just take a word in the Bible and assume it means something. It's really important to understand it in the context of what's happened. Context is critical. Uh, is critical, excuse me. So yeah, Second Peter 3.9. I'll read it one more time. And uh, thanks, for, thanks for listening. This has been the Chorus and the Chaos. Second Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Amen.